Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, you want to be a part of the program, it's going to be 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425 is the phone number. Glad to have you with me. I, I wasn't going to do this out of the gate, but I decided I am. We'll get to the Portland stuff uh, in a little while. I have gotten uh, a, a vast array of questions and comments about my statements on on pre-symptomatic people being the most contagious and, and this is something new and, and didn't we know this all along? And what I've decided I want to do right now is, is kind of review with you how the science has changed. Uh, I would much prefer to have one of the actual experts I've talked to uh, be with me right now and it just is scheduling did not permit. Uh, today, but I think it's really important, particularly in light of, of some people questioning me on the pre-symptomatic stuff of what am I talking about. Uh, and so I want to review for you where things have changed over time. And in particular, I want you to keep in mind uh, that much of the original science and information we got about the virus was from China and it was wrong. Uh, and and I want to walk you through the evolution of stuff, uh, which will be, I think, hopefully useful for you. So let's start with the pre-symptomatic stuff uh, because uh, uh, several people actually very angrily, uh, one of them in particular, said, we, we've known this all along. Why are you acting like it's new? Uh, let, let me explain this one to you. Just like with the flu, now, and when we when COVID-19 originally started, it was considered a, a respiratory disease uh, uh, and we assumed it spread like pneumonia, like the flu, and typically with the flu, uh, you have symptoms, even if you don't know, you're not like mindful of the symptoms, you've got a symptom, uh, and that is your body beginning to trigger its immune response, uh, the flu beginning to take over, and you are contagious. And there may be a day in there uh, where you don't even realize you're sick. Uh, even if you've got a symptom, you don't even realize you got a scratchy throat or something, you think it's allergies. Uh, and then any of you who've had the flu, you know that at some point, you just all of a sudden feel bad. And in particular, what, what most often happens is you go to bed feeling fine and you wake up and you're like, oh, I got the flu. You went to bed feeling fine, you wake up and you feel like you got the flu. COVID-19 presents in very much the same way. You go to bed feeling fine or, or you're fine for most of the day and in the evening you start to get tired and sluggish and not feel good. You maybe you go to bed early because you're just not feeling well and, and you wake up in the middle of the night and you're sick and you know you're sick. And the same thing happens with the flu. And originally what we presumed is that uh, the the infectiousness was very much the same. There may be 24 hours in there where you didn't know you had symptoms and you're contagious. And then you, you get it and that is the moment as your symptoms are developing You've got that scratch in your throat. You think it's nothing, uh, but you do have it. You're aware of it, but you think eh, it's allergies or slept wrong or I snored last night. You don't realize it's the flu and you're contagious and you're giving it to everybody you're coming around. We assume that was the same way and, and you can call that pre-symptomatic. There's 24 hours or so in there where you've, you, you don't even know you've got the symptoms and you're contagious. That was our thinking on COVID-19, and that's why originally they were saying, hey, when you start, you get the scratch in your throat or whatever, that's when you need to wear a mask. You don't need to wear the mask before then. Well, we know something different now. We know that there are actually multiple days prior to the display of any symptoms with COVID-19 
where you're the most contagious with the flu. It, it's right there at the beginning of the flu. And as you're in the flu where you're most contagious with COVID-19, we now know that it's several days before you get even the first hint of a symptom. You feel fine. You don't have the scratch in your throat. You don't have congestion. You're breathing just fine. You're going to the gym. And, and it's for several days there. That's actually when you're shedding the most virus. Keep in mind that the virus is a living organism. And the thing that all living organisms want to do, except apparently humanity these days, is reproduce. And the virus knows at an instinctual level, doesn't have a mind, but at an instinctual level, the moment you get symptoms, you're going to quarantine yourself. So with COVID-19, the way this virus reproduces is you feel perfectly fine for several days while the virus begins to spread. That's one of the several reasons why it spreads more quickly and more freely than the flu. That was the issue. But now a lot of people say, well, we knew we knew this all along. This is why Georgia shut down. Actually, if you go back to March, in the beginning of April, when Kathleen Toomey, the, the head of public health here in Georgia, finally asked the governor to shut it all down, it was because of a change in data that we did not know at the time. What we knew is that there were people who wouldn't think they had symptoms of the virus and that they could spread the virus and that that was like a 24-hour or so, 24, maybe 48 if we're generous window of pre-symptomatic people. We now know it's actually 72, 96 hours, somewhere in there. It's actually a longer window of pre-symptomatic uh, spread of the virus than we thought. That's the big key here is, is it is a bigger, much bigger window for pre-symptoms. Uh, and in fact, unlike the flu, you will not even have a hint of a symptom when you're spreading it. But in the end of March, beginning of April, we now had the data on asymptomatic people. And this was actually why Kathleen Toomey wanted the state shut down. It was the asymptomatic people. The asymptomatic people in March, beginning of April, we presumed were actually the, the big spreaders. We presumed they were the super spreaders. You, you hear the term super spreader, that's the people who spreads it, spread it to everyone. And we presumed it was the asymptomatic people who were the super spreaders because the asymptomatic people, they have the virus and they're contagious and they have no symptoms at all and they're getting other people infected. That is actually why, now it wasn't the pre-symptomatic people who caused us to be concerned and shut down. In fact, at the time, we assumed the pre-symptomatic people were talking maybe 24, at most 48 hours of symptoms. But really, we were thinking 24 hours, uh, 12 hours of the run-up to the virus, and it was the asymptomatic people who were the problem. Well, we now know we're at July 21st as I'm doing this. We've learned in the last month and a half or so that it's actually uh, different. What we now know from our own data, not having to rely on the data of other countries, is that asymptomatic people are not as contagious as we thought in March and April when we were shutting the place down. Uh, we, we presumed, healthcare experts presumed in March and April, that it was the people who would never have signs of the virus who were the super spreaders. They were walking around society like Typhoid Mary, giving everyone the virus never had symptoms themselves, never got tested because they never even knew it. They finally get over it and everyone around them is, is dropping like the plague. We now know, because we've got just our uh, uh, enough of our own data, that that's not true. There are asymptomatic people and asymptomatic people are contagious. It's very, very important you do understand this because there have been some people out there saying asymptomatic people aren't contagious. No, they are contagious. 
they're just not nearly as contagious as we thought they were. What we now know here, July 21st, we, we started figuring this out at the end of May, uh, really mid-May, and, and we got enough data in June, enough studies done, that it's actually the pre-symptomatic people who are mm, contagious for far longer than we expected and who are the most highly contagious people. With the flu, when your symptoms present, that's when you're most contagious. With COVID-19, we now know before your symptoms even appear is when you're most contagious. And we now know that period of contagion is actually longer than we thought several months ago. We also now know that asymptomatic people, people who will get the virus but never, ever, ever have a symptom, are not nearly as contagious as we once thought. In fact, you now routinely hear these stories of so-and-so tested positive for the virus, but they never had symptoms and no one else in their family got it. That's an asymptomatic person who is not highly contagious. So all of this has changed our thinking on the virus. We now have American data from American patients from American states. We don't have any Chinese data left in the data pool. And that's caused us to have to rethink the mask situation. So we knew in March and April, we were beginning to get a sense of the fact that asymptomatic people are not nearly as contagious as we originally thought, but they are still contagious. You can still get the virus from an asymptomatic person. It's just harder than we thought. And the best way to to deal with that is for you to put on a mask and presume you have the virus. Well, we now know, and this is the biggest thinking here, this is the biggest shift in thinking, Pre-symptomatic people are more highly contagious than anyone else, and it's not a 24-hour pre-symptomatic period. It could be up to a 96-hour pre-symptomatic period. Way longer than we thought, you are more highly contagious than we thought, and that is why the virus is spreading so freely. It's the people who will get symptoms, but right now they're 96 hours from even thinking they have symptoms, and they are spreading the virus to everyone. We originally thought the virus could spread from one person to about two people. We now know it's one person to about three people, which is more than the flu. The flu typically is is one to one and a half people. One person spreads it to one, maybe, maybe two people. This virus spreads two people to maybe four people, which means it, it spreads more. Now, there's good news as well. Now that we have better treatments, Remember, we thought that this virus killed four to five percent of the people we came into contact with. It's still higher than the flu. The flu is about a tenth of a percent. This is about one percent, one to two percent. Uh, and and we're still we're seeing that uh, across the board. Now, here's something else that we did not know. And this really interestingly shapes a lot of the studies that people are cherry picking. Because, you know, there, there are lots of people cherry-picking studies that, oh, people are having antibody tests and, and they're showing they're showing signs of immunity. They're showing signs they had it. Well, it turns out the antibody tests are very wrong, and it turns out our research into the antibodies of this of this virus is actually very primitive. It, it looks more and more. There's actually a big study I was reading this morning before coming onto the show that, that T-cells have a bigger play in this virus than uh, your antibodies. Now, what's a T-cell? Well, everybody has T-cells, uh, trillions of T-cells. Uh, and there's been some thinking that new moms in particular, and actually moms with, with kids who are elementary school age, tend to not be getting this virus. Men tend to be getting the virus more than women. And women who ha- are within six or seven years of getting children, there is some available data that they may be the ones least affected by the virus. What's going on here? Well, that suggested maybe there were T-cells 
that were in play. T cells are cells that are specific to various viruses uh, that they, they can attack the surface of the virus. They can render it inert. It, it's basically a, a, a protein fighting protein. And it looks more and more like the the T cells play a bigger role in combating the virus than the antibody response. Now, how do we know this? Well, because uh, a lot of people develop the antibodies and then they're gone in a couple of months. But we're finding in real world practice uh, that a lot of people who do that, they're still not getting the virus again. There's actually good news here that people aren't getting the virus a second time. Uh, in some, in most cases, not all cases, there are people who get it a second time. And in sometimes those second rounds are worse. We're still not sure why on that front. There are a lot of theories circulating. But most people won't get it a second time, even though they don't have the antibodies. And that apparently scientists are rapidly concluding it's a T-cell response. And so when they're making the vaccines, they're looking at the T-cell response, not just the antibody response. And there's some, there's some hopeful progress on that point. My intention here is not to overwhelm you with all the data. It is to show you how things have changed now that we've gotten rid of all the, the Chinese data and it, we're just looking at Americans getting sick and what we know about Americans getting sick. The data has evolved. We now know that pre-symptomatic people are much more highly contagious than anyone else. We now know that the window of, of being contagious is far greater than we thought. We now know that um, asymptomatic people are contagious. They're just not nearly as contagious as we originally thought. And we now know that a lot of the antibody tests out there are deeply flawed. So a lot of the people who are getting the test and, and they're testing positive for the antibodies, they still probably have not actually had the virus. And so you're having a lot of people out there saying, hey, so many people are testing positive through the antibodies, they must have gotten the virus. We now know that may not be the case, that there's still some level of, of misunderstanding or lack of understanding with the virus. We can't conclude that all the people getting the test and testing positive for the virus actually ever had the virus. There appears to be something going on with the antibodies uh, that we're using to test this virus. Um, and so more and more doctors are telling people, don't go out and get the antibody test unless you're participating in research because there's still something not quite right about the antibody test that we got to figure out. Uh, the bigger issue is going to be a T-cell response, and we're still working on that. Uh, so your, your bottom line here is you're more contagious, most contagious, right before you get symptoms, and we now know the window of your, your ability to spread the virus is up to 92 hours before you get symptoms, not just 24 hours. We also know that if you're asymptomatic, you're less contagious than we thought back in May, March and April, uh, but that you can still spread the virus. And what is the magic trick to help? Believe it or not, wear a mask. Hello there. So what does all this data on pre-symptomatic, asymptomatic, all, all that mean with, with everything else going on out there? Well, it, we have progress on the uh, vaccines, uh, Moderna, AstraZeneca with Oxford, Pfizer. They're all rushing forward with this. Uh, Laurel Bristow joined me a couple of weeks ago from Emory, uh, King Gutter Baby. On, she's now like 90,000, 100,000 uh, Instagram followers and, and commented that she would have chosen a better name. Had she had she known she would attract that many followers, uh, she was she she's an epidemiological researcher at Emory University. My wife follows her uh, on Instagram. I, I was listening to some of what she said last night. Can't play it here because there's some profanity in it uh, along the way. But uh, she was noting progress on the viruses. AstraZeneca and Oxford appear to be on track for the virus. Now, interestingly enough, here's how they did it. 
they were working on a virus already, or they were working on an, on a vaccine already uh, against MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is a coronavirus. And the problem is one, one of the, the ingenious uh, genetic engineering things that they were trying to do was they were embedding the SARS-MERS virus inside the an inert other virus uh, and using that to build an immune response. And the problem was uh, that as they were injecting it in, uh, they were uh, triggering the body's immune response to the exterior shell. So essentially, uh, let's say they put it in a cold virus, uh, also a SARS virus, uh, that they put the one in the other and the body goes and attacks the first uh, before it can actually uh, go after the second. So what they decided to do, which is actually very interesting, is they used the common cold virus of chimpanzees, which our body largely ignores, and it allows the body to build up an immune response to the underlying SARS-CoV-2 virus. And it works. Uh, we know that, they, now don't be freaked out about, about the chimp cold virus. It, it actually, our, our bodies uh, don't even, re, it doesn't give us symptoms. It doesn't do anything to us. It's just completely inert. Um, and they've been using it actually as a vehicle for some time uh, for, for, um, for vaccines. But it does appear to have success. It does appear to build an immune response. It does appear to build uh, an antibody response, and it does appear to build a T-cell response, which, again, is key. If you were here at the first first part of the show, the T-cell appears to be more effective in combating SARS-CoV-19 than the antibody response. The antibodies go away after a few months. Now, we're not far enough along to be able to figure out uh, how long the antibodies last with this vaccine or do you need a booster shot. But we do know that the T cell response uh, exists and is is stays stays for several years, based on what we're seeing from other people who have natural immunity to COVID nineteen. We're finding people around the world with natural immunity to COVID nineteen, and it appears they have a T cell response, and that's what it is. That that something, some virus they encountered years ago that was not COVID nineteen triggers a T-cell response to COVID-19 and gives them some level of natural immunity. There's still so much we don't understand. We are, this, we're seven months into learning about this virus, a virus that continues to spread out of control in this country. It is, it is a complete uncontrolled spread in the country. And we're still learning a lot about the science there is still a lot of the science that is changing on a on a weekly basis. But where we're headed right now with our knowledge is that T cells appear to matter. Pre-symptomatic people are the most contagious. Asymptomatic people are contagious, but far less than we thought. And that if we treat everyone as being sick already and make everyone wear a mask, then we reduce the spread dramatically over time. In fact, the president late yesterday came out with a picture of himself wearing a mask and said it's the patriotic thing to do and he's the most patriotic person to wear a mask. Uh, there's a clear messaging shift now from the White House on the mask issue uh, because more and more data actually does support it. But what about all of the studies and research that show that masks don't work? Because there's a lot of that research out there too 
and we should talk about it in, in full disclosure, candidness, and honesty, why there's so much research about masks not working. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. There has been a lot of research out about masks and the efficacy of masks, uh, the efficiency of masks, the effectiveness of masks. Uh, Do masks actually work? Uh, I continue to get all the time on a regular basis people sending me links to studies about masks that show masks don't work. Uh, A lot of people citing various uh, doctors and scientists saying masks don't work. And, you know, just as there are scientists and doctors who will tell you that uh, transgenderism is is real and boys actually can become girls uh, or that uh, vaccines cause autism or that we didn't land on the moon, you can find an expert and a scientist to tell you anything you want. Doesn't mean they're right. Uh, there were people at the one time who believed the earth was flat and that was a prevailing consensus. Now you can say correspondingly, well, what if the prevailing consensus is wrong about masks? Well, we have to take the real world data and the real world evidence and combine it with the studies. And a lot of the studies that were studies done, uh, in hospital settings on the effectiveness of masks on doctors and patients, and in particular cloth masks. And we're talking like uh, t-shirt strength cloth masks. You know, if you put your T-shirt over your mouth and you blow a candle, you can blow the candle out. And that shows you that your standard bandana a lot of people are wearing actually isn't effective at all. Uh, you can, for example, you can go, uh, what is it, uh, Huck, uh, the the apparel, st- the apparel clothing that they make, uh, and Columbia does as well. They make a uh, bamboo uh, fiber pullover that you can pull over your face and ears to protect you when you're fishing so you don't get sunburned. And I see a lot of people wearing those around as masks and they're not really effective. Here's here's your test for your effectiveness. If you can be about a foot away from a lit candle and blow it out, your mask is not effective. Most masks are effective. Uh, for example, I, I've been wearing Adams masks lately. I got the whole family Adams masks, and, and they come in small, medium, and large, so it's not one size fits all. Uh, the Adams mask, A T O M S, it's a shoe company, Adams Shoes, and they're making masks. And I, I put a video up on Instagram you can go find where I was right up. I mean, I was inches from the candle blowing and couldn't blow it out. Or there's the the standard uh, the standard mask, um, and you know so I've got the standard mask on right now. Uh, you can't maybe you can tell my voice has changed very slightly wearing the mask. You can't really change it, but this mask as well, wearing it and talking to you, I couldn't blow out a candle with this mask on. It is a very thin mask, but it offers because of the way it's woven, it offers protection, and it, we're seeing uh, a, a lot of people try to. Uh, yeah, in fact, there's one woman, her video is circulating where she clearly has in some way uh, damaged the mask to be able to get air out of it, to be able to blow out the candle. And people are circulating that around saying, see, these masks don't work. I've got one of these masks. I, I did the video. You can't blow out the candle. And I actually had someone say, oh, well, you've got reduced lung capacity because of clots in your lung. No, no, because I could blow it out with uh, the, the T-shirt. I can blow a mask out. It, it, people are trying to come up with excuses. What does the data actually show? Okay, there is data going back to the mid-80s on the on masks being ineffective. The, those studies, more often than not, 
are about masks in hospital settings and the effectiveness of masks containing disease within hospitals. And the rule of thumb is that it does reduce sick people spreading the virus, but it doesn't really protect healthy people from acquiring the virus. So if a healthy person wears a mask, and this is the key here that people seem to not want to pay attention to when they cherry-pick the data. When a healthy person wears a mask and a sick person does not, uh, a healthy person is not protected from getting the virus. When a sick person wears a mask and a healthy person does not, uh, the healthy person tends to be better off. Now, when a healthy person and a sick person wear a mask, both sides actually do well. I, I, I saw what, and he's a friend of mine, and I'm trying not to, to not to, to fight with him on on Twitter. Uh, he was pointing to a study by a scientist uh, showing that the masks are not very effective, and we don't need to wear them except when the government makes us wear them. And the New York Times actually interviewed the study, and, and he said, "Well, so she's being bullied, so she's walking all back." And she's like, "I'm not being bullied." They're misrepresenting the study. The study was in hospitals, and the study was of cloth masks in hospital settings. Cloth masks do not work to contain the virus. When you're in a hospital setting, you're dealing with sick people, you got to wear a surgical mask or you got to wear an N95 mask. Uh, Just putting a bandana around your face is going to do good. Now, what about in a setting outside? Well, when everyone wears a cloth mask, cloth masks are not as good as a surgical mask or an N95 mask or even a a woven cloth mask that's designed to actually be a a mask. Your your standard bandana or your T-shirt isn't as effective. But when you're doing it and they're doing it, it, it does actually reduce the spread, just not nearly as much as we want. So when you go out and you've decided you're not going to invest in a mask, you're just going to put a bandana over your face, keep in mind uh, you might as well not be wearing anything because it's not very effective. And all the all the data is conclusive on that. But that same data is very conclusive on the fact that in a community setting, as this virus is spreading, a good quality mask, it doesn't need to be a 95, it doesn't even need to be a surgical mask. It can be one of those Adams masks. It can be one of the masks you're buying at your local store. Uh, your key is, can you blow out a candle with it? If you can blow out a candle while wearing the mask, it's probably not effective. If you can't, get about a foot from the candle that's lit and try to blow with the mask on. If the mask lets you blow out the candle, get a different mask. If it doesn't, you're probably okay. Now, why? Because we now know from the science there are a couple of things going on. Uh, First of all, some of you out there are screaming right now. I can hear you. I know it. That uh, the mask, the virus is so tiny that the virus can penetrate through the pore of the mask. You know, those of you who are saying that the virus is so small that it can penetrate through any hole in any of the masks, you're absolutely right. And a lot of the original research would back you up on that. The virus can penetrate a mask. Here's the thing, though. We know from COVID-19 that the virus does not leave your mouth on its own. The virus is a hitchhiker. The virus cannot travel by itself. The virus travels embedded in water vapor particles that leave your mouth or mucus that leaves your mouth, snot that leaves your mouth. Those particles are big enough that the mask more often than not stops them. So the virus can't get beyond your mask. But 
If you've worn glasses while wearing a mask, you know your your glasses tend to steam up, and that is because uh, the, some of the water vapor particles are going to go straight up, and the virus spreads that way. But where's the virus spreading when it does that? Well, gravity pulls on all things. Gravity pulls on a feather and a bowling ball in the same weight. Gravity pulls on a virus and a bowling ball in the same rate. When you are... When you don't have a mask on and you sneeze or you cough and you expel viral particles, they get airborne with the the water particles and they float in the air for some time, moving forward at a rate until gravity takes over and pulls them down. And they can transmit 12, 20 feet uh, before gravity takes over and pulls them to the ground. When you wear your mask, uh, your airflow is redirected up, which is why your glasses fog up. And when it goes straight up, Gravity catches it and pulls it straight back down. It's not going to drift across a room when you're doing that. So gravity, again, plays an assist. That is why and that is what the current data shows. Um, That's that's what the science says. So many of the studies being cherry-picked by people who are mass skeptical are studies from the 80s and 90s in hospital settings about the the propriety of cloth masks. Cloth masks aren't going to work. Your bandana is not going to save you from the virus. Your uh, fishing gear pullover um, probably isn't going to save you, save you from the virus. The key again is is put it on and can you blow? Can you be a foot away from a lit candle and blow it out? If so, you're not going to get any protection. If not, you are going to get protection. That's how you need to measure the the efficiency of your mask or the effectiveness of your masks in containing the virus. We do now know though, but now let's take the first hour of the show and combine it with this one. You, when you're pre-symptomatic for 92 hours before you have symptoms of the virus, you are most contagious and you're spreading it to people by breathing. You put a mask on, uh, you're containing the virus within your mask or you're, you're allowing gravity more easily capture it and pull it to the floor where people are more or less likely to pick it up. You're asymptomatic, you're spreading the virus, although not nearly as much as pre-symptomatic people. The same thing happens. You wear a mask and you keep it from spreading. The virus, more often than not, we now know, is not really going to spread. Your sweat can spread it. Uh, But the oils on your skin, more likely than not, are not transmitting the virus. It's your sweat that's doing it. Um, That appears to be in the current research. But wearing a mask does help. Now, how does all of this play out with schools? Well, there's some data we know about schools now, too. Uh, High school and middle school kids... They're virus receptors, they're virus transmitters. Elementary school kids, not so much. Uh, We should be able to send our kids back to school at an elementary school level um, uh, and allow them to go to school. Is there some risk? Yes, there is some. But if they're washing their hands and parents are not sending the kids to school when they're sick, they're going to be fine. Now, this is part of the problem. Every single last one of you knows of someone who sends their kid to school when their kid is sick because the parent doesn't want to stay home. The parent wants to go to work or needs to go to work, can't miss the days from work. That's going to have to change. Uh, Even in my kid's school, uh, there have been kids who have come to school and thrown up at school and and they knew they admitted getting up that morning. They didn't feel well and their parents made them go to to school. Uh, If a parent does that with a kid who has COVID-19, they're going to infect the school. You can't do that. Uh, you know, this is this is one of the things that that bugs me. We need to get rid of the award for never missing a day of school, frankly, because the award for never missing a day of school incentivizes sick kids going to school and spreading the virus. So we need to get rid of that. But elementary school kids, according to the data at this moment, 
are not major spreaders of the virus. Elementary school kids at this moment uh, are not major uh, receptors of the virus, meaning they're not going to get sick either. You're not going to get a first or second grader to keep a mask on all day. You can spread them out and you can uh, distance them in rooms. You can distance them in lunchrooms. You can make them eat lunch. You can make them go to hand washing stations regularly. You can do all these things. You can make them use hand sanitizer. There are ways to get elementary school kids back into school. Now, what about middle and high school? There are ways to do it, but it requires education. One, it requires educating the parents that if the kid has any symptom at all, they can't come to school. And you need to make sure the parents understand how serious the situation is. Two, the kids are going to have to be socially distanced, and the high school kids in particular are going to have to wear masks. If the high school kids aren't wearing masks, they're going to have trouble. You're going to have to reduce class sizes, spread kids out in classrooms, uh, make sure they're washing their hands. You're going to have to get rid of the lunchroom. Kids are going to have to eat lunch uh, spread out in small groups, things like that. It is possible to send our kids back to school this fall. And it is possible with contact tracing and regular monitoring of people that we can do it in a way that does not exacerbate the viral situation. We send kids to school all the time during flu season. Now, we have vaccines for flu unlike this. But we can send kids to school with the flu and the flu doesn't spread. Uh, in addition to the vaccine issue, we, we know how to tell kids who are sick, stay home. Here's one more piece of the data that has to concern us, though. This goes full circle in this hour. Pre-symptomatic high school students, uh, 96 hours before their symptoms show up, they're very contagious and they're in school. That's a problem. Uh, the biggest way to combat this problem is this. And parents, please pay attention to me here because this is actually my concern. We got a lot of people right now, including many of you who are listening to this show, who are grumbling right now that I've spent the hour on this because you don't think the virus is a big deal. You don't think it affects you. You don't know anybody who has it. Nobody's going to get it, and it's all overstated. And so you're not actually doing what you need to do with your family to keep them from getting the virus, and you're doing a disservice to the whole idea of loving your neighbor. Because you've decided, despite everything you're hearing from the experts, from the White House, from the doctors, from the healthcare experts, from the governor, from the president on down, you've decided it's all overstated because someone on the internet told you as much, and you are you don't think it's a big deal, and you don't care, and so you're not going to behave accordingly. Well, it's going to be your kid who gets the virus and spreads it in school. And if we were all angels, we wouldn't have to worry about this, but we're not. And that is, frankly, my big fear is the people who don't believe it's a big deal engaging in risky behavior that gets them and their kids infected and they send their kids off to school and their kids start spreading it to all the other people who've actually done the stuff they needed to do, but you didn't think it was a big deal anyway, so you weren't going to, and now your kid's the one who spreads the virus. That's my biggest worry in schools right now are all the people who think it's a conspiracy to, to undermine the president and don't actually think it's a real deal. They don't know anybody who has it. They think it's all overstated. And so they're going to engage in the irresponsible behavior that causes everyone else to get sick and causes the schools to then shut down. I talked to Governor Kemp yesterday. I wish I could play you the recording. We, we had a technical issue. weren't able to play the recording. But the governor again yesterday in my evening show pointed out, we're not going to have a college football season because people aren't wearing masks. We're not going to have a school year because people aren't wearing masks. 
That's true. You you can say the data is all wrong. You can say the science is all wrong. You can say all of that. You can be vehemently opposed to wearing a mask. We're not going to have a school year because of you. That's the bottom line. Hang on. I'm trying something. This is important because I'm getting emails from people. All right. Here we go. Um, I have mentioned a couple of times now on the program. Well, let me turn on the live stream again. There we go. I, I've mentioned a couple of times on the programs. Uh, I ordered Adams masks uh, for the family. Adams is actually a shoe company, uh, but they have some great masks. And the thing that I like about the masks is that they uh, are large, medium, small, and they come on a variety of colors. So like for my son, I got him a small mask, a light blue small mask. Uh, for me, I got a navy blue large mask. Uh, for my middle child, I got a medium size black mask and got a black mask for my wife as well, a, a large one. They come in sizes. Um, it, the website is adams.com. If you can't remember that, if you text data to 33777, text the word data to 33777, uh, I will send you back a link uh, to the Adams mask website where you can order the masks. Now, their shipping time, it takes up to seven days to get. Um, but they're good. Uh, I've been using mine. My, my wife and, and kids have been using theirs. Uh, one thing you need to know, let's talk mask hygiene real quick. Uh, as a practical matter, if you're listening to me in the South, if you leave the mask in your car and your car is outside, your car is going to get so hot in its interior, you don't have to actually worry. Now, you should wear, you should wash your mask on a regular, uh, you should wash your mask regularly. But uh, this is this is important. Um, we now know from the data that if it is uh, 90 to 100 degrees or hotter, the virus does not last long in the wild. In fact, the reason the virus is spreading so rapidly right now is, is it's in air-conditioned environments where it's spreading. You leave your mask in your super hot car that gets even hotter during the day because it's left in the sun in the south. You are okay. You don't need to worry, but let's talk about the practice of wearing your mask. What you need to do is make sure you wash your hands. Typically what I do when I go to Publix or or any grocery store and I wear my mask, when I get back to my car, I cover my hands in hand sanitizer. While my hands are still wet with the hand sanitizer, I take my mask off. I don't take my mask off first. I cover my hands in hand sanitizer first before I take my mask off because my hands are coming close to my eyes, my nose, my mouth. I don't want to make sure if I picked up the virus accidentally. So I put on the hand sanitizer first, make sure my hands are wet, take my mask off, uh, and then finish letting my hands dry. The, the, The alcohol in the hand sanitizer evaporates. And that's it. And then I, when I put my mask back on, when I go to my next stop, I don't leave it on the whole time. Uh, when I put my mask back on for the next stop, I'll put hand sanitizer on, get it wet, and then put the mask back on. Now, hand sanitizer is in short supply, so oftentimes that second time I put it on, I don't put the hand sanitizer on. But then when I get home, I wash my hands. And then do remember to wash your mask because they are going to get gross with other stuff, even if not the virus. The virus is going to die in your hot car. But you still wash your mask, good hygiene, um, and you should probably buy multiple of these masks uh, because you want the good hygiene. You, you should buy multiple of the masks because you want 
you, you want to be able to wash and, and rewear and recycle. And I, 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 ours actually got put in the dryer accidentally and they did not shrink up. They were still fine. Um, it, let's see the care instructions on these, uh, mask ones says hand wash the mask with your preferred laundry. Do not bleach air dry. Um, and they do dry out very quickly. Uh, I, I can tell you this. I'm, I'm a big fan of these masks. Now, there are disposable masks out there. I'm going to put some links together for you. There's actually a company here in Georgia uh, that I believe I can refer people to to buy masks. I want to check with them to be sure. When we come back, though, we got to move on to other stuff. Uh, the Portland situation. I actually was going to start this hour with it, but decided it was better to review the science with you of, of what we know so far. As a, Frankly, it's a trial run for me. I've got a shorter clock in my evening show. I want to be able to do it with them as well, so I figure I'd do it with you guys, do it with them this evening. we got to talk about the Portland situation, though. Tonight, the president is going to have a press conference on COVID-19. He's going to resume the task force briefings. He's going to put Dr. Fauci back out there. He thinks this will help him with the public. He's out urging people now to wear masks. But what about the invasion of Portland, as the left would call it, the secret police in Portland? It's all a bunch of hooey. I want to explain to you why it's a bunch of hooey and why the left is so comfortable with these conspiracy theories. Uh, when we come back, we'll take your phone calls as well. Eight, uh, what is it? 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Computer systems and cars are the new normal, from electronically controlled transmissions to touchscreen displays to dozens of sensors. But you can't fix any of those features yourself. So when something breaks, it could cost a fortune. Now's not the time for expensive repairs, given what's going on out there. That's why you need CarShield. CarShield has affordable protection plans that can save thousands for a covered repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and more. The people at CarShield understand payment flexibility. It's an absolute must. Payment plans can be customized to your needs with rates as low as $99 a month. There's no long-term contract or commitment. CarShield gives you options others won't. You get to choose your favorite mechanic. You get to choose your dealership to do the work, and CarShield takes care of the rest. They offer complimentary 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is being fixed. CarShield has helped over 1 million customers, so drive with confidence knowing you've got covered by America's number one auto protection company. For as low as $99 a month, you can protect yourself from surprises and save thousands for a covered repair. Call 800-CAR-6000 and mention code ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, or visit carshield.com and use code ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, to save 10%. That's carshield.com and then my name, ERIC. A deductible may apply. Hello and welcome. How are you? It's Eric Erickson here. I hope you're doing well. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Welcome to the program. I want to talk about Portland, Portlandia, the, the hipsters in Portland. And you've got the Democrats are all upset about some sort of secret police force. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, I, I, you know, let me play you. Let me play you two clips out of the gate. This is Fareed Zakaria on CNN talking about the president and his conspiracy theories. Begin with a confession. This is not the kind of topic I usually tackle, and I am concerned about repeating false information. But this subject is urgent because the conspiracy theories circulating now are dangerous and the President of the United States is trafficking in them. When Donald Trump tells us elections are rigged, Obamagate is the biggest scandal in history. Some know these ideas are wholly false, but others are less certain, especially when they hear a story full of details that seems to explain everything. 
polls show that up to 50% of Americans have believed at least one of these conspiracy theories. This is a story of just how destructive they have become, not just to the people they target, but also to the very foundations of our democracy. With the ominous music, all oh, the, the president and his supporters, they're trafficking in conspiracy theories. My friends, they're trying to convince you it's the end of the world as you know it. That the Democrats are going to steal the election. That the virus is Chinese. That it's not really a big deal. That it's an overblown media conspiracy. Oh, yep, yep, yep. You know where they're going. Well, hey, let's listen to a conspiracy theory. I have said all along that this man is a deplorable human being. Uh, and certainly, uh, there's nothing that he could say that would shock me anymore. And so he's already, uh, you know, basically talked about perhaps there might be a civil war. Uh, and when he tells you he cannot commit uh, to stepping down, believe him. Believe him, because I tell you something is going on in this country. When I take a look at what is going on with, in Oregon, and who are these federal agents unidentified in unmarked cars uh, that are raining down on the protesters. Who are these people? Are they organized uh, by and with the president of the United States? Are there more of them? Or are they in practice for what they're going to do when they resist uh, the fact that this president perhaps is not going to be reelected? I think Americans should be worried. But I've thought all along that Americans should be concerned. This is the most flawed character uh, that I've ever uh, encountered in my life. He's dangerous, and I believe him when he says that he cannot tell us whether or not he's going to accept, uh, you know, if he is not elected. Uh, he cannot give you uh, well, any reassurance uh, that he will do what the Constitution expects uh, any president to do, and that is step down. So here's Maxine Waters. You have Fareed Zakaria hand-wringing about uh, the president spreading conspiracy theories. Notice no one is, is upset about a Democratic member of Congress spreading conspiracy theories, in particular that these troops in Portland are going to be used by the president to hang around an office and refuse to leave after he loses the election. That's that's their conspiracy theory. That's what they're, That's what she is peddling. That's what the Democrats are pushing right now. And no one's calling them out. You, you know, is, is there a level of paternalism out there that this is a, a uh, elderly black member of Congress uh, who says zany things and, and there's no reason to hold her to the standard we would hold any other politician? We, we, if Jim Jordan said this about Barack Obama or anyone else, the media would be beside themselves. If Mark Meadows said it about a, a Democratic president, uh, the media would be incensed. Uh, but here, here is a ranking Democrat saying that the president is going to use a secret police force to keep himself in power. Notice Maxine Waters, uh, Nancy Pelosi, and all the others who are upset about these uh, federal troops in Portland, they're not actually seeking to defund them. They are not advancing legislation to defund them. Now, what is actually happening in Portland? There are federal troops in Portland, federal a, a, a federal sort of police force, if you will. Now, the police power resides with the states, not with federal government, but the federal government does have the ability to send in some law enforcement, federal law enforcement, the Bureau of ATF and, and others to uh, crack down when federal laws are being broken to protect federal buildings, things like that. 
And that's what's happening in Portland. And you have hysteria from the left that this is some sort of secret police force that is on the move. No, you know who has secret police? The Chinese. And, and notice the Democrats don't want to talk about that. Mark Cuban uh, of the, the Malvericks in Dallas, Texas, uh, refuses to talk about the Chinese. He's, he's all about Black Lives Matters, but can't utter a word about the Chinese rounding up uh, Uyghur citizens and sending them to concentration camps. Can't, can't talk about that video. Nope, uh, but let him lecture us on Black Lives Matters. This is uh, something we're seeing more and more, and it, 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 this is this is bizarre. And along the way, they're making outlandish claims about the president sending these people into Portland. Uh, and by the way, they're not actually rounding up and arresting people. They're protecting federal property in Portland. That being said... I don't think the federal troops should be in Portland. I don't think they should. Uh, let, let me explain to you why I don't think the president should be sending the federal. Now, the, it's one thing to be said, go per, go just protect the federal property. But they are going a little bit beyond that. They are clearing out some of these zones in, in the city. And the president is using the constitutional requirement that we're to ensure a, a uh, Republican order of government. That's not Republican Party, just Republican, non-monarchical, non-dictator. Uh, to ensure that at the state level, the president is using that, among other things, as, as a way to go in. I don't think he should. I actually agree with Rand Paul on this. I, I, Rand Paul and I, I like Rand Paul. We don't always see eye to eye. Mostly we don't. But I agree with him on this. Portland is a city that has bizarre politics and has for a long time. Uh, starting in the 1970s, judges in Portland ruled that nudity was a form of expression and protest. And if you want to run around the city of Portland without clothes on, uh, you are presumed to be engaged in political protest and you will not be arrested. You can, you, it is perfectly legit for you to walk around the city of Portland, Oregon with no clothes on uh, at all times. Businesses don't have to let you in, in the door, uh, but the government can't stop you and they can't arrest you for being naked in the street. Portland is a bizarre place. There is an entire TV show, Portlandia, about how weird and hippie Portland is. The people of Portland voted for this sort of stuff. The people of Portland support this sort of stuff. And the people of Portland should be forced to drink it from a fire hose. They should be forced to drink the anarchy from a fire hose. The president, if anything, by sending in federal law enforcement agents to clean up the streets of Portland, is protecting Portland from the logic of its own insanity. And he shouldn't. Uh, these federal troops should uh, get out of the city with the exception of protecting like the federal courthouse there. Get out of the city. Let them run roughshod over the city. The people of Portland voted for that. Let them suffer the consequences of their votes. The people of Portland are the ones who decided they wanted crazy town. If the people of Portland, Oregon had rejected the protesters, I would believe the president should send federal troops into Portland and drive out the protesters. But the people of Portland have long voted for crazy town. As I've mentioned, you can run around Portland, Oregon without any clothes on and they will not arrest you because uh Judges in Portland, Oregon have for years said nudity is a form of protest. And so now you have random naked people run around Portland, Oregon.
the, the series Portlandia ridicules Portland and just how ridiculous it is. The people of, or- of Portland, Oregon have organized their democracy around insanity. And so they should not be spared from the consequences of that insanity. The president of the United States should not be protecting Portland from what it voted for. Democracy must be allowed to have consequences. And the democracy in Portland, the consequences of that democracy are anarchy. And they should be forced to suffer the consequences of what they voted for. And when the businesses move out and the unemployment goes up and crime goes up, that's what they voted for. And maybe then their system will be awakened and they will realize that they've been propping up insanity. But as long as the president sends federal troops to Portland, Oregon, to protect Portland, Oregon from the logic of its own insanity, uh, they will blame the president and will never be required to recognize the fact that they themselves in their democratic processes have fostered insanity on themselves. They can take the blame and blame the president and a supposed secret police who are on camera, who are known federal agents who are protecting federal property. As long as they're just protecting federal property, leave them. The president has the right and obligation to protect federal property. But they've gone beyond that. They're trying to help clean up the city. They should not. They should force the people of Oregon to drink from the water hose of anarchy that they themselves have subsidized, they themselves have voted for. If the city of Portland, Oregon, and its voters have decided to live in a hellhole, we should allow them to live in that hellhole. It is their choice. You and I don't have to go there, and we don't have to subsidize it. We don't have to try to protect them from themselves, and all the president's doing is allowing them to point to him and not have to point to the crime and not have to point to the vandalism and not have to point to the riots and not have to point to the decay. They can say, oh, it's all the president's fault. All this is happening because of the president. They've got an easy way out. The president has given them an easy way out. He's doing it because he cares about the citizens. He's doing it because he cares about the federal property, He and he should protect the federal property. But stop saving people from themselves. At some point, the city of Portland, Oregon needs to be allowed to run itself as anarchically as they want to run themselves and see the city go into the gutter. And either they will recognize that they have turned their city into a gutter or they will live in the squalor and decay of that gutter with joblessness, homelessness, no more of a tax base. And one day enough of them will leave that some will pick up the wreckages of that city and rebuild it in a better image. We need to allow this to happen. We need to allow the city to collapse on its own. We don't need to push it over. They're pushing it over themselves. They should be allowed the consequence of their actions. And that is why I think the president should not have federal troops or federal police or anyone else in that city trying to contain the anarchists. Let them have the city. The voters of Portland want it. They voted democratically for a city government that would allow this to happen. Learn to live with the consequences of it, people. Learn to live with it. Don't try to protect them from themselves. And then maybe the media won't be so fixated on Donald Trump and would actually have to say, hey, wait a second, what's going on in Portland, Oregon? It's very much like, by the way, in, in Atlanta. Keisha Lance Bottoms trying to blame open carry on the violence in the city. No other city in the state is having any sort of problem with with violence. No other city in the state is having gun laws cause an increase in violence. It's just Atlanta. 
And notice what Brian Kemp is doing. Brian Kemp sent in uh, soldiers from the National Guard just to protect state property, not to engage in law enforcement. So the media can't point to Brian Kemp and say, oh, look, he's, he's, he's running roughshod over the mayor, or running the police operation in the city. No, he's just protecting the property. The mayor is having to live with the consequences of the increase in violence, and she's having a real hard time justifying it, defending it, explaining it away. Uh, when it didn't happen last year, it's only happening right now. And what is the difference? By the way, there is some breaking news here. Uh, the the judge, the Fulton County Superior Court judge, Kelly Ellerby, has recused herself from the battle between Kemp and Keisha Lance Bottoms on the lawsuit uh, regarding the pandemic response. She was going to hold a hearing, uh, but uh, the Georgia Attorney General has announced that she is recusing herself from the lawsuit, and they'll have to find a new judge to handle it. So no one outside of left-wing activists and the district attorney in, in St. Louis, Missouri, believed that that couple who lived on the private street, who the protesters, they, they kicked in the gates and came storming through the neighborhood, uh, that they, they shouldn't face repercussions for standing in front of their property with their guns to defend their property, but they're going to be prosecuted. Well, the governor of Missouri, Governor Parsons, has come out and said absolutely not. Uh, if they're prosecuted and found guilty, he will pardon them. Hey, now they're going to charge them. Will you pardon them? Without a doubt, Sean. I'll do everything within the Constitution of the state of Missouri to protect law-abiding citizens. And those people are exactly that. They're law-abiding citizens. And they're being attacked, frankly, by a political process that's really unfortunate. It's a sad day for us here in Missouri. You know, I, full disclosure, I found it ridiculous. Uh, the husband and the wife standing out front of their, their mansion, him with his AR, her with her pistol, uh, her finger on the trigger didn't look like she knew proper gun safety skills. Uh, it, it, the whole thing looked farcical. It looked ridiculous. But they had every right to do it. Your home is your castle. You have the right to defend it. The protesters, this was a private street, a, a private gated street in St. Louis, Missouri. The protesters forced their way into the neighborhood and were chanting about burning down the houses in this neighborhood. Let, let's not forget that key detail. They were chanting about committing violence on those homes and decided to march down the street. This couple came outside and protected their property with their guns. They had every right to do that. They weren't brandishing. They were defending Now, I need to say this, and I think this is exceedingly important, and everybody needs to understand this. I complain regularly about the government picking winners and losers. I think it undermines and cheapens our American democracy our Republican institutions, when the government picks winners and losers, when the government decides this company is worthy and this one is not, this person is worthy, this one is not, uh, based on on typically on, on the political sympathies of the various parties, things like that. What's happening to this couple, I thought it was farcical and ridiculous, but I think the media is picking winners and losers. And this couple had the audacity to not show solidarity with Black Lives Matters. And that's why they're being targeted by the press. And I suspect this is going to happen more and more often. There's that famous photo from Nazi Germany 
that people use and they circle the guy and say, be like this guy where everybody's whipped into a frenzy. They're, they're doing the Hail Hitler thing. And this guy's basically just standing there with his arms crossed. And people are saying, be like that guy. Except when the mob comes, everyone wants to be a part of the mob. The, the, the media wants to be a part of the Black Lives Matters movement. They have willfully ignored that the organization Black Lives Matters is an explicitly Marxist organization, as founders call it a Marxist organization, and it wants to disrupt and end capitalism, the nuclear family, uh, uh, heterocentrism, all, all sorts of things that, that are uh, essentially the, the, the communist struggle. That's what they're all about. And the media has totally ignored the fact that Black Lives Matters, the organization, is anti-police, anti-capitalist, anti-West, anti-nuclear family, explicitly Marxist. The media wants to pick its winners and losers too. And I have this sneaking feeling what we're going to see as a trend line in this country is that increasingly the left is going to organize protests in local communities. And you're going to be shamed if you're not there. And there is basis for this. There are corporations in this country already that during June, which is Pride Month, organized corporate events in sh their show of supporting gay pride. And employees who don't want to participate are routinely shamed. I have heard from more than one person over the years from major corporations, particularly some of the financial corporations, Citibank being one of them, that they, because of their faith, didn't want to participate. And so they were shamed by their company lectured by human resources for not participating, for making people feel unsafe by their refusal to participate in, in gay pride events. We're going to see this across the board now. We're going to see this with Black Lives Matters. People are turning it into an idol. Even within the church, we've got people now who are insistent uh, on, on racial reconciliation and embracing critical race theory, which is a Marxist concept, to try to, to make it happen. Listen, I, I'm not opposed to racial reconciliation. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I, I wish every church in America uh, had a, a multiracial pool of talent so that we could see the entire body of Christ reflected in the pulpit. But that's not going to happen. And I don't think the government should force anyone to do it. But we're, we're going to see this sort of stuff. We're going to see protest as a form of religion. Uh, back in the 50s and 60s, people were back, back in the 1750s and 60s. You could be shamed for not showing up in church. Now in this country, you're going to be shamed for not showing up in protest. It's going to start happening. We're already starting to see it happening in parts of this country. And we should stand up for the people who don't want to engage in it and don't want to be a part of it. Well, we are beginning to unravel the mystery. Uh, uh, this is fascinating. I, I've told you guys, I continue to get reports from people that uh, they know someone. It's never them, but they know someone who got the test or, or signed up to take the COVID-19 test, did not take the test. Uh, and then got a positive result for the test. By now, you probably have seen this too, because I'm seeing it everywhere, and it is almost always the identical message on social media just swapped out uh, with different names or, or different entities. Uh, I know uh, my friend told me that his cousin or brother or sister or mother or father or coworker sat in line for a very long time got fed up and left and didn't take the COVID-19 test and then got results that they were positive. 
I've seen this constantly. I've gotten friends of mine who have texted me and said this, and, and there is a common element in all of them. No one wants to actually talk about it, which makes me suspicious of it when when uh, you've got so-and-so says to so-and-so who says to so-and-so that they got the, the te- positive result and they never took the test. That's a pretty big deal, and no one wants to actually come forward and talk about it. Well, uh, it, 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 it is becoming so common, you know, in stories like this, there's always an element of truth. When you get stories like this circulated, there's always something that has happened. And a lot of good reporters have gone out under the suspicion that this has happened, but it's not nearly as common as people suggest. And it's taken over social media. I have actually now had one situation where someone reached out to me and I don't want to go into names of these people because I don't want to shame them on the radio show. But a friend of mine reached out uh, because someone in his church tested positive for COVID-19 without having the test. And I wanted to talk to the person in my friend's church who had it happen. uh, And that person was super reluctant to talk about it. Did not want to say anything, which is kind of weird. Well, it turns out the person, it really didn't happen to that person. He just, he wanted to be part of the story. Um. And then I suspect there are other people like that. But good reporters kept seeing this happen. They tried to trace it back. Well, one person has been found in Florida. This is um, Mindy Clark. Uh, Mindy Clark says that she waited in line. Uh, She never got tested. She got a call asking for me. They told her I had been tested. I had tested positive. I was like, positive for what? And the lady said, that's impossible. I never got tested. She had gone to the drive-through testing site at Manatee Rural Health, but before she was able to get swabs, she left the line because she realized it was for people with symptoms only. I told them they needed to take this off my record, and they said I had to prove it to them that I wasn't positive. She tested negative two days later and also tested negative for the antibodies. Plus, according to many of the viewers of this TV station, this is from WWSB ABC7 in uh, St. Pete, uh, that uh, it that this has happened to other people. They have tried to fire, I'm sorry, Sarasota, uh, WWSB in Sarasota. They have tried to find, this reporter has, this news station has tried to find the other people who have had this happen to them. And they haven't been able to find that it's widespread. Uh, they interviewed Jay Wolfson. Uh, he is the public health and medical professor for the University of South Florida who says this is part of the testing mechanism problem. People are sitting in their cars, sometimes for hours, or standing in line six feet apart, sometimes for hours. You're registered through, you're number 15 in line, and you are Jay Wolfson. If Jay Wolfson says he can't wait any longer and he leaves, it will get number 15 and now get Rebecca Fernandez, who was standing behind him. Rebecca Fernandez is now the 15th person in line, and she tests positive, and then everyone from then on gets the wrong result. There has to be a better way to do it, and that is the explanation for what is going on. Uh, They queue everyone up. So essentially what this healthcare expert is saying is what happens on occasion, depending on how they're doing it, is in some situations they give everyone a number because of HIPAA. They want to protect your privacy. So Eric Erickson is number one. Uh, Christy Erickson is number two. Uh, Joe John Doe is number three. Jane Doe is number four. 
Well, Eric Erickson in number one uh, gets frustrated with having to stand there for three hours, so he leaves. And then Christy Erickson is uh, so frustrated that she's been there. She's leaving with Eric Erickson. So now John Doe is number one in line, but number one was assigned Eric Erickson, number two to Christy Erickson. So John Doe uh, gets his his card. He tests positive. Well, Eric Erickson's going to get the positive test result because he was the number one in line and he left. That appears to be what's happening, but it does not appear to be a common situation. And that's the key here. There's a it, This report makes clear this is happening It is not nearly as widespread as people see, and it has taken on uh, urban legend, but like most urban legends, there's a kernel of truth to it. That appears to be the situation. So, yes, it is happening. No, it is not nearly as common as so many people are saying it is happening, Uh, and it has to do with the, the testing makeup, and it depends on whether or not you're handing your paperwork in as you are tested or are you handing your paperwork in ahead of time. And more and more, they're cautioning these testing facilities to not allow people to hand in their paperwork until it's their turn. I hope that makes sense to everyone as we begin to debunk this. There, I have said all along, this had to be happening to someone. No one's going to come up with that on their own. There had to be someone who had it happen to them. And there now appear to be several isolated incidents where this has happened. And that's what the situation is is about. Um, hopefully, though, uh, but again, I, I, I talked to a buddy of mine. He called me and said, hey, this person in his church said it had happened to them. I very much wanted to talk to that person and see the documentation. And it turns out that person just really wanted to be a part of the story and and was not actually there. Now, let's move on to Keisha Lance Bottoms. Keisha Lance Bottoms, uh, the mayor of Atlanta, is continuing her campaign against Brian Kemp with a very sympathetic media on her side. Why do you think the governor sued you and not the mayors of other cities in Georgia with rules on mass? Um, he's made it very personal. He sued me personally uh, in his name personally. And so I, I don't know what the reason is. Only he can answer that. There were several other cities that went before Atlanta And I was very intentional in making that decision because I wanted to see what any response he would have to the other cities. They are led by men. I don't know if it's because I am a woman. I don't know if it's the demographic of our state. I don't know if it's because of my very strong support of Joe Biden as president of the United States. Um, There there are several things that I I can assume, um, but what I know is this is very personal to me and very personal to the people of Atlanta. He has singled us out. I know his lawsuit isn't just about mass, Mayor. It's also about you uh, rolling back Atlanta's reopening. Uh, What do you say to business owners who are struggling to get by right now, don't know whether to listen to you or to the governor? What's really strange about that, Wolf, is that the governor uh, acknowledged during his press conference that he had just learned that the advice was advisory voluntary advice we convened an advisory committee to make recommendations for businesses related to our phase reopening we thought we were on the path to reopening uh not knowing that very quickly we would be going backwards with that phased approach but they were voluntary recommendations this committee was comprised of business owners in the city and so i am being sued personally about making uh, or giving advice to businesses based on data and metrics 
um, and also an attempt to stop me from speaking on that advice. And certainly there's a better use of our resources. Now, the the mayor of Atlanta is taking advantage of the governor's reluctance to do national media. The governor, of course, is reluctant to do national media because the governor knows that much of the national media is out to get him because he dared to beat their precious Stacey Abrams. He's got no use to go on CNN. Uh, most of his voters don't watch it anyway. And Keisha Lance Bottoms is able to get out there and define what's happening. And even people like my wife, it, it is, uh, she's been hearing these interviews of Keisha Lance Bottoms and thinking, well, this is crazy that the governor's doing this. Well, Keisha Lance Bottoms is, is uh, distorting what's actually going on. Wolf Blitzer asked her there in that interview on CNN about uh, the conflicting messages and, and noted, why is the governor not suing other cities with mask mandates? And her claim is that she's making it personal or that the governor's making it personal. That's not true. Why is the governor only suing Atlanta and the mayor? Contrary to what the mayor claims, it actually is about her advice to businesses. The mayor of Atlanta has held multiple press conferences and issued press releases saying that it was time to go back to phase one and businesses needed to shut down. The mayor of Atlanta imposed a mask mandate and said she could enforce it. And the governor had to sue the mayor of Atlanta as opposed to, say, for example, the mayor of Macon that also issued a mask mandate but noted he couldn't actually enforce it because the governor wouldn't let him. Uh, but the mayor of Atlanta has tried to do this. The mayor of Atlanta has been out there pressuring businesses to shut down, and the governor and the attorney general decided to intervene to say, you can't do this, mayor. You're not allowed to shut down. You're not allowed to roll back. You're not allowed to arrest people or fine people or ticket people for not wearing masks. And the governor or the mayor rather has decided to scream racism. The mayor of Atlanta has decided to scream about it. The, the mayor of Atlanta has decided to be the one to go on TV and engage in character assassination of the governor and suggest there's some sort of racist motive behind him doing this. He's not suing the black mayor of Savannah. He's suing the mayor of Atlanta. The only difference between the two is that the mayor of Savannah has not ordered businesses to close again. The mayor of Atlanta on multiple occasions told businesses we needed to go back to phase one and shut things down. That was them. That was her. She did that. And so the governor had to file suit against her and request that the state uh, request that the judge tell her to stop holding press conferences where she tells people to, to shut down because she's sending mixed messages to to businesses. And she wants to go on Wolf Blitzer and say it's racist. She wants to go on Wolf Blitzer and say it's personal. At this point, it is personal. And at this point, I think it's probably time for the governor of Georgia and the legislature to take control of Hartsfield-Jackson, two dead mayors, International Airport, away from the mayor of Atlanta. She clearly cannot handle things in crisis. And so it's time for them to remove the ability to run the airport from her. Did you know that the airport in Atlanta, Two Dead Mares International Airport, is the largest economic engine in the Southeast? And not even the city council of Atlanta has say over it. It is a direct appoint by the mayor of Atlanta. The mayor of Atlanta appoints the chief operating officer. 
the chief operating officer appoints all the people on the board and all the people on the board appoint everyone else. Uh, the, the mayor gets to make that call. And at this point, she's handling all of this situation so badly, they should not allow her to keep control of the airport. They, they absolutely fundamentally should not do it. Um, the chief economic engine of the Southeast should not be in the hands of the mayor of Atlanta who screams racism when the governor tells her she can't shut down businesses. The, the chief engine of, of economic opportunity in the Southeast should not be in the hands of a mayor who won't stand behind the police when they have a difficult job to do. The, the economic engine of the Southeast should not be held hostage to someone who might, to score political vendettas against the governor, try to undermine its ability to generate economic opportunity to get back at the governor. If she's that willing to accuse the governor of Georgia of racism because he's trying to protect Georgia businesses, why wouldn't she try to sabotage the airport to hurt him? It's probably time for the airport to be taken over by the state. So Andrew Cuomo came down to Georgia. He's on some sort of uh, attaboy, pat-on-his-back campaign uh, to claim that New York, which has been a total disaster, that somehow it did better than other states, and it did not. New York has been a disaster. Uh, Jake Tapper last week uh, went on a tirade about it, that, um, that, that somehow or another... Um, New York claims that it was doing well, but it's not doing well. The city hospitals were overwhelmed. The death toll in New York is still per capita and individually higher than other other states. Uh, They haven't necessarily contained the virus. Uh, Resources have been overwhelmed in the state. Well, uh, the governor, notwithstanding that, has decided to go out on a campaign to, to claim that he's doing well and to come to Georgia to show up Brian Kemp. So he went to Savannah. Interestingly enough, the mayor of Savannah... And the governor of New York did not wear a mask. Now, both of them are insisting that Brian Kemp impose a mask mandate. Both of them are insisting that you should wear masks at all times in public. Both of them are insisting you should socially distance. Neither of them socially distanced. Neither of them wore masks. They're hanging out with each other. Now, initially at the conference, you should know, initially, if you look at some of the initial initial pictures, initially, everyone wore masks except the speaker. But by the time it was over, the mayor of Savannah and the governor of New York are standing elbow to elbow without masks on. It's somewhat ridiculous. The governor of New York, whose actions led to the deaths of thousands of senior citizens comes to Georgia, thinks that we can learn from him. No, no, it was actually Brian Kemp and Ron DeSantis who figured out that uh, the virus was spreading in nursing homes rapidly who were taking steps to stop it while the governor of New York was sending infected uh, senior citizens back into nursing homes to kill everybody. By the way, uh, the governor has announced an initiative with Mako Medical. It's a North Carolina lab company. They're going to be able to increase Georgia's government testing capacity by 10,000 a day, providing the results within 48 hours. 
Uh, Cody Hall, uh, the governor's uh, press secretary and spokesman, said that uh, Georgia is going to pay $100 to $110 per test, and they chose Mako because it offered the best combination of price turnaround time. Uh, You're going to get a 48-hour turnaround, which is what we need for contact tracing. Uh, Initially, when we started doing testing in Georgia, what was happening is the public labs were falling behind and the private labs had excess capacity and they were able to get a quick turnaround time. But that's changed now. It's the public labs that are not at capacity and the private labs that are, and it can take CVS in some cases now. Well, no, not CVS. CVS has a rapid test, uh, but some of the other private vendors who are testing, it can take them up to a week to get the results back. Well, that's not good for contact tracing. You need to have a 48-hour turnaround time at, at, at the latest to be able to do that. And so the governor, uh, partnering with this company in North Carolina, they're going to be able to do a 48-hour turnaround. and They're going to be able to boost uh, testing capacity by an extra 10000 a day. That's good. We're making progress in Georgia. There's something else you need to know that the governor told me. We are now three days in a row, three days in a row of testing. Sunday, Monday, no, 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 I'm sorry, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. We're now seeing, oh, what? No, okay, sorry. Uh, someone is listening who would know, and they're texting me while doing this. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. We're now seeing, uh, through since Friday, we're starting to see a decline in the percentage positive again, and that's good. So essentially, here's what you want to see to, to make sure the virus is going away. As the number of tests go up, you want to see the percentage of tests go down. Now, the, the, you know, the president had said the reason we're seeing a big increase in the country is because we're testing more. And that's true, but it's the percentage of tests. So if you have, if 20% of the people you test are positive, that means your virus is really spreading. If you're, if you're doing 100,000 tests a day and 20% are uh, testing positive, that means the, the virus is spreading. You go up to 110,000 tests a day and suddenly it's 25% testing positive as opposed to 15%. You know, you got a real problem. The virus is really spreading. Well, what we're seeing in Georgia is that as, uh, as testing goes up, we're starting to see a decline again. And the number for a while there, we were starting to see the percentage of test positives go up. Now we're starting to see that percentage of test positives go back down. And it has been very steady now uh, to the point that it's starting to work its way into the seven-day rolling average. If that continues, it means that the virus is receding in the state, and that's good news. The, the num- number of daily cases starting to go back down. So, for example... Uh, the seven-day rolling, the, or I'm sorry, the 14-day window we use in Georgia to try to assess the trend lines. Uh, the number of cases on uh, Ju- July 6 was 4,740. The number of cases on July 7th was 3,719. That's a drop of a thousand. Now, where we are on July uh, 8th? Let me see. Where is the 8th? Um. Yeah, July 7th is 3,700. July 8th is 3,338. July 9th is 3,256. Now, those numbers could still go back up. But it looks like we're starting to see in the moving average, we're starting to see a decline again. We're starting to see people getting out of hospitals. We have over 3,000 people in hospitals now, but they're turning out faster. They're getting over it quicker and we're clearing capacity better. 
And that's a very good sign that we're headed in the right direction with this virus. It should give everyone some level of optimism as to what's going on out there right now. We hope, we think we're headed in the right direction. Computer systems and cars are the new normal, from electronically controlled transmissions to touchscreen displays to dozens of sensors. But you can't fix any of those features yourself. So when something breaks, it could cost a fortune. Now's not the time for expensive repairs, given what's going on out there. That's why you need CarShield. CarShield has affordable protection plans that can save thousands for a covered repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and more. The people at CarShield understand payment flexibility. It's an absolute must. Payment plans can be customized your needs with rates as low as $99 a month. There's no long-term contract or commitment. CarShield gives you options others won't. You get to choose your favorite mechanic. You get to choose your dealership to do the work. And CarShield takes care of the rest. They offer complimentary 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is being fixed. CarShield has helped over 1 million customers. So drive with confidence knowing you've got covered by America's number one auto protection company. For as low as $99 a month, you can protect yourself from surprises and save thousands for a covered repair. Call 800-CAR-6000 and mention code ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, or visit carshield.com and use code ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, to save 10%. That's carshield.com and then my name, Eric. A deductible may apply. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, you want to be a part of the program, I'll let you. You can call in and chat. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC. That is 877-973-7425. The Atlantic, I talked about this the other day uh, over at the Federalist. They ran a very curious story uh, from Derricka Purnell on how she became a police abolitionist, abolitionist, and how she claimed that uh, she saw when she was like 12 years old the police shoot a kid in the arm for misbehaving, um, it, 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 for uh, skipping the basketball sign-in sheet. He shot someone in 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 uh, the arm. Well, the Federalist, uh, Christopher Bedford at the Federalist, did an investigation of this and was able to track down where this woman would have lived and the most likely community centers that she would have been at and requested Open Records Act requests, all this stuff, interviewed police officers, looked in papers, couldn't find anything, couldn't find anything. Well, four days later, the Atlantic has issued a series of major corrections that confirms what the Federalist said and has gutted uh, Purnell's story of police violence that made her a police abolitionist. Uh, Interestingly enough, there's a contemporaneous news article uncovered by the Federalist using uh, timeline details uh, pending police charges against the shooter. Someone in the neighborhood, it appears, called 911. The very first, let me read you part of this. The very first shooting I witnessed was by a cop, the story read, from 7 a.m. on July 6th until 1.37 p.m. on July 20th. It detailed a police officer shooting a boy on city property in front of children over a personal feud, thus seemingly suffering only a short suspension from duty at the rec center. I was 12. This is what the girl wrote, the lady wrote. 
I was 12. He was angry that his cousin skipped a sign-in sheet at my neighborhood recreation center. I was teaching my sister how to shoot free throws. When the officer stormed in alongside the court, drew his weapon and shot the boy in the arm. My sister and I hid in the locker room for hours afterwards. The officer was back at work the following week. If her prescribed abolition of police departments were followed sooner, she wrote, I wouldn't have hid in the locker room for hours because of a police shooting, and maybe my sister would have had a better jump shot. The article was shared among journalists and activists, including an Atlantic editor whose praise remained online Monday night. On Monday afternoon, the Atlantic updated the above paragraph to read this. The first shooting I witnessed was by a uniformed security guard. I was 13. I remember that the guard was angry that his cousin skipped a sign-in sheet at my neighborhood recreation center. The victim told police it had started as an argument over something stupid. I was teaching my sister how to shoot free throw guards when the guard stormed in alongside the court, drew his weapon, shot the boy in the arm. My sister and I hid in the locker room for hours afterwards. The guard was back at work the following week. The earlier version described the shooter as a cop. The more material of the two Monday corrections reads, in fact, he was a uniformed armed security guard working at the municipal recreation center employed by a security company under contract with the city of St. Louis. In addition, the author was 13, not 12 at the time of the incident. The Atlantic still refuses to share any corroborating evidence or if they did a fact check of the original story before publication, although a search of the St. Louis post dispatches archives encompassing the now broadened timeline reveals an early 2004 shooting at Booter Recreation Center less than three blocks from Purnell's old address. The article, published March 9, 2004, is titled Security Guard is Charged with Assault and reports that the security guard, 23, and his cousin, 18, were quarreling at the center around 4.50 p.m. March 8th when the shooting occurred, according to Richard Wilkes, a police department spokesman. The victim was shot in the arm. Wilk said that there were no other injuries and no children were involved. When asked if the Atlantic spoke to the victim, spoke to the guard, or acquired a police report, Anna Bross, a vice president of communications at the magazine, replied, to start, you can find coverage of the incident in local newspapers in 2004. The article's title and call for police abolition remain unchanged, although the story justifying her activism is no longer about a police shooting. It's no longer about a child is without serious consequence and is now about a private security guard shooting an 18-year-old relative and being charged with assault. The magazine decided police bringing charges within one day, however, was not worth mentioning, and the 18-year-old victim is still simply referred to as a boy. Now, let me back up and re-encapsulate all of this for you and what we're dealing with. The Atlantic ran an article... You know what? Let me let me make sure I've got my recording for Philip. The Atlantic ran an article by a woman named Derricka Purnell, a social justice activist entitled How I Became a Police Abolitionist. And she tells this fantastical story. When she was 12, a police officer shot a boy at a basketball court at a community center, shot him in the arm because the boy was arguing about a, a sign-in sheet at the neighborhood recreation center. She and her sister hid in the locker room for hours later, and the police officer went back to work the following week. That is when she decided 
that she was a police abolitionist. That is when she decided she hated the police. That is the foundational basis for her story on becoming a police abolitionist is she saw a police officer shoot a boy in the arm because the boy would not sign in to get on a basketball court at a rec center. From July 6th until July 20th, the Atlantic stood by the story and then changed the story. It now turns out it was not the police shooting a boy. It was not a police officer shooting a boy, but a uniformed security guard who was upset that his cousin, who was 18, got in, they got into an argument over a sign-in sheet at the basketball court, and the older cousin, who was the security guard, fired a shot in the 18-year-old's arm and then was charged by the police with assault. A substantive material difference. How is it that The Atlantic would run an article by a social justice advocate, activist, saying that this was the seminal moment in her mind the police were bad. She saw a police officer shoot an unarmed boy in the arm because the boy refused to do a sign-in at a basketball court. And now it turns out it wasn't a boy. It was an 18-year-old. It was a 20, what, 20, 20-year-old 20 security guard, 23-year-old security guard who actually shot his cousin in the arm. And the police charged the man with assault. It was the police who actually sought justice. And they're not getting rid of the story. They're just changing the parameters. And yet that's their defining story. Friends, one of the issues that we're dealing with in this country right now is that the narrative is more important than facts. So at Bari Wise, when she resigned from the New York Times, she pointed out that a lot of people in journalism these days, they don't really care about the facts. They care about the narrative. And the narrative is that police are bad and police violence has been going on for a long time, uh, particularly police violence against minorities has been going on for a long time and that we need to get rid of the police. And so the Atlantic gets on the bandwagon and allows someone to publish a story about police violence against a boy at a rec center and the police got away with it, and it turns out that that story's not true. It is mythology. Because the narrative is more important than the truth. The narrative these days is always more important than the truth. And in fact, that goes to shaping the stories out there. This has a relevant tie-in, by the way to what's going on on the political landscape right now. The president of the United States sat down for an hour with Chris Wallace and risked the slings and barbs of the, of, of the media for daring to sit with Chris Wallace, who asked him tough questions. It was a combative interview, and it was for an hour. And the media is giving Joe Biden a pass completely because the narrative is more important than the facts. The fact is Joe Biden mentally probably could not handle an hour with Chris Wallace. And the media that is so concerned about the uh, mental state of the president completely ignores that about Joe Biden because the narrative 
is more important than the facts. Here's Chris Wallace. The fact is the president is out there. He's out there in this broiling heat with me for an hour, took all the questions. Uh, you can like his answers or dislike them, but he had, he had answers. And Joe Biden hasn't faced that kind of scrutiny, hasn't faced that kind of exposure. Uh, yet you got to feel at some point he's going to come out from the basement. I know he's done a few, few events, but, but pretty selected and oftentimes just reading from a teleprompter. He's going to have to do, be more exposed and take questions just as tough as the ones I asked this president. I hope he'll do it with me or maybe a little bit less. I hope he'll do it with you. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, he's going to have to do it with, 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 with a bunch of people. And, of course, he's going to have those three debates with the president. And you know that the president can handle himself in these debates. The question, I think there is an open question there. Can Joe Biden do the same? You know, it's interesting. There already, there's already suspicion Joe Biden is not going to hang around for the debate, that he's not actually going to debate the president. I think he is. I think Joe Biden has to debate the president. But it's the narrative from the media that matters most. Go back full circle to, to the story I talked about earlier, the couple in Missouri. Uh, I thought it was kind of ridiculous, them standing outside in their Brooks Brothers outfits to, with their guns uh, defending their property, but they had every right to do with it, whether I thought it was ridiculous or not. But the media's turned them into the bad guy because they dared to defend their property against Black Lives Matter's rioters. The story in The Atlantic, uh, the, the narrative about ab abolishing the police is much more important than the actual facts of the situation. The media wants to construct narratives. The narratives are always hostile to the right, always favorable to the left. They leave out key details. They leave out key facts. They leave out key points because they've got to shape a narrative. This is why so many people don't believe the press anymore. And by the way, this is why so many people don't believe what they hear about the virus. This is why so many people can't believe the facts about the virus. This is why so many people can't believe the media statements on the virus, because in every other way, the media shapes narratives and is way more interested in shaping narratives than they are telling the truth, than giving just the facts and letting you make up your mind. The media wants to lead you in a particular way to a particular viewpoint to arrive at a pre foreordained conclusion. And people know what's happening. And if it's happening on the president, or on policy or on politics, it can happen with the virus. And so a media that at one point was believed in this country when it would tell you things like, yes, the evidence has changed, the data has changed, and now it actually does look like mass work. Now it looks like they're just trying to lead you in a particular way, and they're not giving you the facts. They're giving you the narrative that matters most. And much of it is so anti-Trump that when people hear the media stirring the pot on the virus, they think, oh, they're just trying to use this to get to the president now. Nobody knows what to believe because the media is a bunch of liars who just want you to be told a line of, of a, a, a bill of goods, sold a line of a bill of goods so that you believe what the media wants you to believe as opposed to giving you the facts and letting you make up your mind yourself. It is fake news and guided news and shaped news and manufactured news designed to get you to arrive at a particular conclusion. And to the extent that you refuse to go along for the ride, you're a bigot, a hater, a racist, a homophobe, and the like. The media's got to shame you for daring to think for yourself. Well, we appear to not be alone on this front with the Board of Pardon and Paroles. Uh, my buddy Doug Turnbull, who does traffic over at WSB, 
sent me this story. A Montana man who originally faced dozens of felony child sex abuse charges has received a deferred sentence of one year after agreeing to a plea deal. According to the Great Falls Tribune, William Edward Miller Jr., 51 of Great Falls, was arrested in February 2019 after a 14-year-old girl accused him and an 11-year-old boy of raping her. Later that year, he was charged with another 64 counts of felony child sex abuse after investigators found child porn and images of bestiality on his devices. But Miller later reached a plea deal with prosecutors that dismissed the majority of the charges. He ended up pleading guilty to one count each of felony child sex abuse and misdemeanor unsworn falsification on Monday Cascade County District Judge Elizabeth Best handed down two concurrent sentences in the case, a year-long deferred sentence with unsupervised probation for the felony and six months in county detention for the misdemeanor. In the later latter sentence, the judge also credited Miller with more than a year of time served under a deferred sentence. Felony charge could be wiped off his record. Wow. I'm noticing a trend across this country of not taking sex crimes against children as seriously as what we once did. And that to me is deeply problematic and very dangerous and sad. And we should be vigilant. It's one reason we should be very concerned about the uh, Board of Pardon Paroles here in the state. For those of you who have not heard, have not paid attention, the Board of Pardon and Paroles in the state allowed out of prison after seven years a man sentenced to a 1,000 years in prison, who the judge called the most prolific collector of child pornography on planet Earth. The man had images and videos of children being raped, tortured, and sexually abused. The judge sentenced him to a 1,000 years in prison to make sure he could never get out, and the Board of Pardon and Parole let him out anyway. And there needs to be an investigation. Tell you what else there needs to be an investigation. And while the, the governor of Georgia is sending the National Guard to Atlanta, I'm hoping he may consider sending the National Guard to Macon. Uh, where I live, I got a vested interest in this. We need the National Guard in Macon. Macon is rapidly, it looks like, becoming the murder capital of Georgia. Let me uh, read you. This is from Joe Kovacs at the Macon Telegraph. It was just after 10 a.m. on the 4th of July when a woman met with a sheriff's deputy on Azalea Drive. The cops had been called to a house there off Ayers Road, half a mile from where Napier Avenue joins Forsyth Road in North Macon, about where the deputy's write-up of the incident would later describe as a possible as possible threats be made. The woman told the deputy that the father of her children, Davius Johnson, had sent her a threatening text message. She said she and Johnson had been chatting about their children about how she was having a holiday gathering at her place. The woman showed the sheriff's deputy a cell phone screenshot of the couple's text message in which Johnson said he told her, as the deputy put it in his report, enjoy because today may be your very last day on earth. The woman went on to say that while talking to Johnson by phone at some point earlier, he had told her he was going to come over to her house and shoot her in front of her company. The later remark was not recorded. No one ever heard Johnson's supposed statement. 
The deputy said he gave her numbers to a woman's shelter and advised her to stop all forms of communication. Less than 15 hours and multiple gunshots later, two people at the woman's party was dead. One of them was Davius Johnson. Johnson's death in the small hours of July 5th would mark a troubling milestone. His death that night, along with that of a man named Notorious Williams, who is thought to have exchanged gunfire with Johnson, fatally wounding Johnson in a shootout inside the woman's home before Williams was then allegedly shot dead by another man outside. It was the 30th and 31st homicides of 2020. The slaying came less than a year after the a week after the year's midpoint last Friday night. Devon Patton died when he was shot in the parking lot of the Macon Family Dollar. The killing pushed the city's violent death toll to a total that eclipsed the annual homicide tally for every full year except one in the past decade. The most people to die in Bibb County, Georgia, at the hands of another in any other single year since 2010 was 30 people slain in 2017. A rate of three killings per month for the rest of the year, July included, would put the homicide rate for this year in Bibb County at 47. It is difficult, if not impossible, to pinpoint precise reasons for the rate increase, but Macon has already on record pace for killings in the first two months of 2020. Maybe it's because we've all been cooped up. I don't know. But uh, we focus on the city of Atlanta because it is the capital of the state. But there are all sorts of problems down in middle Georgia right now as well. Uh, And it is particularly, this is the crazy thing about it, it's neighborhoods. You know the neighborhoods not to go into. You know the places to avoid, and you're racist for pointing it out, but everybody knows. But this is not a good situation in middle Georgia. Uh, Law and order is an issue even here, and it's when local governments, particularly here in Macon, seem incapable of dealing with. There are problems that have to be addressed. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you would like to call in, 877-973-7425. I I want to see if I can go fast-paced here with with some things, but I want to return. So we had a technical difficulty here yesterday where we had to wind up in mid-sentence, switch something. Several of you thought you had lost your mind. You hadn't, um, you know, so I do this show out of my house. It gets routed uh, through uh, the studio in Atlanta and uh, then broadcast out via satellite to all of our affiliates. And someone uh, in the building changed the routing. So I was going through my studio and then to the satellite and suddenly I wasn't. And uh, we thought my line had dropped. It turns out it hadn't dropped. Someone had pushed a button and was sending me to some other studio. But nonetheless, uh, it, it caused a mess up. So I want to return to uh, what I was trying to talk about here at the end of the show uh, yesterday. J.I. Packer has died. He is the most one of the most famous theologians in the 20th century. He's a Protestant Reformed theologian. Uh, wrote a very famous book called No One God, and his thinking actually shaped uh, thinking across Christendom, uh, not just Protestantism, not just the Reformed faiths, but also even Benedict XVI, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, then Cardinal Ratzinger, was impressed with Packer's Knowing God. And uh, what Packer premises foundational Christianity on is the idea of God's fathership and, and the Christian name for God as father, uh, which separates it from, from Judaism, our personal relationship with God as our father. And it, Ratzinger wrote favorably of this. It shaped some of his thinking. So uh, Packer is one of those few uh, Protestant reform theologians who has also impacted Catholic uh, thinking 
on God. It's a notable loss, and in light of R.C. Sproul dying as well, uh, you've got Tim Keller now with pancreatic cancer. It's it's Christianity seems to be losing some of its 20th, early 21st century giants along the way. Keep Tim Keller in your prayers. I, I want to focus on this, though, because uh, it, it's relevant to politics. You'll have to forgive me for, for tying Packer, who uh, was was British, couldn't care less about American politics, um, tying all this stuff together. Because let me let me actually pull up the quote again so that you can hear it for yourself before I make the point I want to make that is going to offend some of you, uh, which is not my intention, but is inevitably what happens when you go down these roads. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote this in Knowing God. You sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayer and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. We, through Christ's death uh, and resurrection, we are adopted into uh, sonship with God. Uh, whether you're, you're male or female, it doesn't matter. You, you're, you're an heir of Christ. Paul writes about being uh, sons of God because in the Roman Empire, daughters did not have uh, hereditary rights, inheritance rights. It was only the sons that did. And so it was very meaningful to the women of the early church to have Paul say even they would be sons. Now, in our modern times, we have kind of gender neutralized the meaning here. And so people can't grasp the significance of what Paul was saying at the time, that you are sons of God. Even you women are sons of God. It doesn't mean you're suddenly going to become male. Uh, what, what Paul is trying to uh, confer to you in the early church, women would have got it, is that women didn't have inheritance rights and with God they do. It's a very big deal. Now, this is not a Christian show. This is a show about news and analysis, the news and the headlines and, and discussion of politics and my opinion on it all. But I, this is all relevant, I think, to what's happening in the political landscape right now because, you know, religion doesn't go away. It just takes new forms and, and morphs into something. True faith may be set aside by some people, but they still put their faith in something. Uh, John Calvin said the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. We all create idols. There's no such thing as an atheist. Everyone believes in something. And increasingly, on the left, people believe in politics. Politics has become their religion. You know, in the in the 15 and 1600s, in the land that would become the United States, in, in Puritan New England, you would get in trouble if you didn't go to church on Sunday. If you weren't seen in church and you didn't have a good excuse, you would get in trouble. This happened in Europe as well. You were required to go to church. This happens in some communities in this country now. Uh, in a number of black communities in this country, they, they try to pay attention to who's there on Sunday. Sunday or not, and they want your tithe collected. It becomes a very big deal. Your participation in church is a sign of your faith is a big deal. I guarantee you what's going to happen is we're going to see uh, people on the religious left who have taken faith in God and morphed it into faith in government, uh, they're going to take attendance at the rallies and the protests. I mean, we, we have this. We see this with gay pride rallies, frankly. We see this uh, with certain corporations where they expect attendance by their employees at corporate events for gay pride. 
this happens more and more. There have been a number of lawsuits in the last number of years of people who have uh, felt uh, that their companies were pressuring them into it. Uh, I know of one company that required its employees to affirm through a survey their views on gay pride and employees who did not take the survey were admonished and those who took it, it was not anonymous and, and answered essentially that they did not show loyalty to it were slowly pushed aside. I know this happened. I know someone it happened to at a major financial institution in this country. And all of this goes back to we, we everyone has daddy issues. Unless you, everyone wants a father figure. And if you recognize that God is your father, you tend to be grounded in life. And, and people who have bad relationships with their dads, uh, you know, fathers matter. Let me just as an aside here, fathers matter. And it has become acceptable in this country to praise single moms and mothers. And if you if you dare to say anything about fathers, you get all sorts of upset people saying, well, what about mom? What about the single mother? Well, you know what? God bless them, but I'm talking about dads right now. Stop being so self, self-interested, self-centered. Dads matter. In the Old Testament, Noah's children and wife were allowed on the ark, not because of anything they did, but because Noah was found righteous in God's eyes. Uh, Noah's family was saved because of Noah's righteousness. They did nothing, but God cared about Noah, and so his family could be safe. Dads matter. In this world, every single one of you listening right now probably knows someone who has a bad relationship with their father and it affected them in some way, particularly girls. Girls who do not have good relationships with their fathers go out in search of a father figure and more often than not wind up either pregnant or or in bad marriages or, or some such because they're trying to find a father figure. Boys who have bad relationships with their fathers tend not to be good fathers themselves or they struggle with it over time. It is something that stresses them out. And I know plenty of preachers who build on what J.I. Packer have said and said, if you can understand that you have a good, good father, he is your holy father, and that you are his child and he loves you and will protect you, uh, that has helped more people than I can count overcome their daddy issues and realize that though their earthly father may have failed them, their heavenly father won't. Well, when you are on the left and you reject the idea of your heavenly father, you go in search of a new daddy and you find a daddy in politics. And increasingly, as well in this country, what happens is you find people on the right who are looking for a daddy in politics, someone to protect them. God can't protect them. Somebody in politics has to protect them. And on the right, they've gravitated towards Donald Trump. And on the left, they're gravitating towards activism and this brand new religion. And it's causing us across the board, left, right, and center, all sorts of problems. As everyone goes in search of daddy in politics, the left wants you attached to Uncle Sam's man boob. The right believes that, that daddy political Donald Trump should set the course for this whole country. And, and even on the right now, you're seeing people saying, well, maybe this whole individual thing is a bad idea because some people are individually going to make terrible choices. Maybe we should have the, the maybe we should have Washington set national policy. No, as a conservative, I find that anathema. It's a horrible idea. And yet you're starting to see this happen across the board. And, and what happens in, in Christianity in America 
as well is we get all sorts of idol worship as people morph cultural religion and back into the church. So racial reconciliation becomes a thing. So I, listen, racial reconciliation, don't hear me wrong, I think is very important. I think the church should be colorblind. I would love to be in a church where we had black and white ministers together uh, who we could hear from because I have learned over time that my, my black friends from seminary put different emphasis on different syllables of faith. The, the story of the Exodus has a whole different meaning to a group of people whose ancestors were slaves. But we have a bunch of people now who decide that racial reconciliation itself is, is the part of the church that must be focused on, not the gospel itself. And we leave Jesus beside and it becomes an idol and it causes problems. And you see the Southern Baptists having dabbled in um, critical race theory, which is a Marxist concept. And, and we got we to gotta walk back from that. Uh, and, and the Southern Baptists are fighting that fight right now. And in, in the PCA where I am, we're still on, on the sexual fights. And, and can, can you actually from the pulpit proclaim that marriage is between a man and a woman? And in theory, yes, you can. But you would be surprised at a number of pastors within the conservative PCA denomination who have decided that, no, we really shouldn't say that because that'll turn off some people from coming in. We, we got to be loving. We can't accept the Manhattan Declaration or the Nashville Statement, which was a statement on uh, marriage and biblical orthodox sexuality because it, it's just it, it, it it'll leave people with a bad taste in their mouth well you know uh, Christianity is an exclusionary religion and you might as well when you get into the door recognize that there are a lot of people including some inside the door who aren't actually going to wind up in heaven one day believe it or not well all of this leeches out into the political sphere you're all wondering where is he going with this it all leeches out into the political sphere where we want daddy political we want a savior, all of us do. And increasingly, as everything becomes political in this country, we're trying to find that savior in politics, whether it's Donald Trump on the right or Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the left, but increasingly, we're finding it in protest. And we're finding it in movement outside the church. And this isn't just on the left, although it's most prominent on the left, where they've taken the aspects of religion and they've morphed it into society at large. Protest. In the, I mentioned in the in the early church in this country, you could get in trouble if you didn't go to church. We're now beginning to see people get in trouble if they don't go to protest. I can easily see there being communities in Georgia, particularly in the metro area, where entire city blocks turn out for Black Lives Matter's protests, but the one family doesn't, and that one family is shamed just as 500 years ago, they'd be shamed for not showing up at church on Sunday. Everyone's looking for a savior in politics, a father in politics, a strong man in politics, and it's coming in the form of protest. But it's not just the left. Look at some of these brain biblical donkeys who are evangelicals who support President Trump. I, on a daily basis, Christendom in America is embarrassed by people like Jerry Falwell Jr. or Robert Jeffries in, in Dallas, Texas, who they have made a part and parcel part of their faith support for Donald Trump. You can be a Christian in this country and support Donald Trump. You can be a Christian in this country and not support Donald Trump. To make support of a particular politician a, a tenet of your faith is heresy and yet it's happening on the right. And I think that all of us should go back to J.I. Packer's quote. 
You sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If if that is the if if, if that is your foundational view of Christianity, God is your father. Your father raised you in a certain way. And you, therefore, should not behave in certain ways in society. And increasingly, I find on the right, I've got friends who who now dabble in this, that we should behave exactly as the left. The reason the left is dominant and wins is because they're nasty and they fight, 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 fight. Everything is a fight. Everything must be politicized. Everything must be fought. And you must stand on a particular side. You can't do that if you're actually someone who takes your faith seriously. First of all, you've got a father who actually is going to protect you. The creator of the entire universe can protect you. Second, you are going to be persecuted. Jesus Christ himself said so. You can have all these wonderful things in the world, but you're going to get persecution as well if you believe in him. Third, there are things you just simply cannot do. A godless, secularist, atheist can behave in certain ways that you as a person of faith cannot. And you see this in the protest movements of the day and the things that whip people into a frenzy and the dividing lines. And those people want you to behave this way. And there are people on the right now saying, we must engage exactly as they behave. We must dox. We must shame. We must out the people on their side. We must harass them. We must send the mob, the conservative mob for them. You can't do that. If God is your father, he expects you to behave in a certain way and you will be disciplined. And if you keep behaving in that way, then at some point people must question whether or not he really is your father because your father raised you in a better way. You, if you're a person of faith, cannot behave on the political landscape like the other side that doesn't believe in God. And a lot of you are, but not only that, a lot of you are twisting your faith to try to justify your behavior. And you'll be called to account one day for that. And so will I. You know, when I started seminary several years ago, uh, it it was a, a year or so into it, I realized how often I was twisting my faith to conform to my politics. And it was really a wake up call that actually I should be twisting my politics to conform to my faith. And there are so many people out there who try to justify all of their behavior and say, well, you know, I can get away with it because I'm a Christian and I'm saved. Um, You know, I I think J.I. Packer would disagree with that. You find out how much a person makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If it is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayer and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. If you understand Christianity well at all, you should not be whipped into a frenzy with the mob these days because you know what? You're only passing through, headed home to eternity, and it all works out in your favor. This program is brought to you by True Precision, which makes uh, just awesome uh, supplements to your firearms. Slides, triggers, barrels, you can get them at True Precision. Uh, Their website is true-precision.com. They are stylish works of art. I can't, right? If you go to my Instagram feed, you can see the gun. I've got a Glock 43X. And True Precision upgraded the slide. They actually, uh, they, they picked the whole thing out. I built it through them. Uh, the grip, the the, the slides, I got to upgrade the trigger now. But the sights, uh, the barrel, it is, it's really awesome. Uh, it is a camo pattern. The grip, my wife doesn't particularly like it. She thinks it's too grippy. I think it's it's just, it, it's perfectly grippy. Um, and now I found a guy here in Macon. They've got an outdoor range at their house and I got to go, they're friend of a friend and I got to go hang out with them and shoot my gun. But 
I you need to go to true-precision.com and you need to check them out. Uh, you need to check them out because their gun upgrades are awesome. Uh, and if you you can buy their slides and their barrels and stuff online, and if you use Eric E R I C K at checkout, you'll get ten percent off. Cannot recommend them enough, y'all. I I worked with them and built a gun. I'm so delighted to have them as an advertiser now. Uh, we're one of the few radio companies or radio sh- shows that is willing to have gun advertisers. I absolutely am willing to have a gun advertiser, particularly one as awesome as True Precision. So thank you to them. True-Precision.com is their website. Uh, speaking of the Second Amendment, holy moly, the number of gun purchases in this country is going through the roof on a daily basis, more people are buying guns, and ammo is becoming hard to find as a result. Uh, it, it's I'm having friends of mine trying to learn how to make ammo themselves because they're having a hard time finding it. Um, but I went down a couple of weeks ago down to to Barrow uh, down in in Butler. My one of the, it really is one of the most awesome gun stores out there, and they were slammed. They had so many people in there. And I'm hearing Clyde's Armory is the same way, Adventure Outdoors, uh, Shot Spot in Carrollton. Uh, people are just, uh, I mean, wow, people are buying guns. Now, if you're one of these gun manufacturers in Georgia or whatnot and you need access to capital, you should reach out to my friends at First Liberty Building and Loan. If you're a company in Georgia and you want to grow, you need access to capital, or you need into the PPP program, First Liberty Building and Loan is the way to go. They're in Noonan. They're local. They're good friends of mine, the Frost family. Uh, Brant V is actually one of the vice chairman of the Republican Party here in the state. Great people. Uh, FirstLibertyGA.com is their website. If you need PPP, they can get you into the program. They can't guarantee it, but they'll do their best to get you into it. Um, but if you're a business and you want to grow, you reach out to them for access to, to lines of credit and loans. They can help you with that. It is firstlibertyga.com is their website. Uh, they are good people. And man, there are a lot of companies out there right now on the gun side that need to be growing and, and need more money to be able to grow because people are buying up guns left and right out there. That makes new Republicans.